This is beginning in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they, the Ninevites, turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let me go ahead and pray for us here this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah. It's been a challenge to us here these past few weeks. And um, I know that as a pastor, I've seen it, the, the book of Jonah in a fresh new way. And I know that many in our church have seen the book of Jonah in a fresh new way that's challenged us. And so I pray that the spirit would continue to challenge us, continue to push in and um, and grow us in our understanding, not just in this book, but also in the, in the nature of the God that we serve and love. And um, so, Father, I just pray that the Spirit would be over Brad this morning as he brings the Word and preaches to us, that the Spirit would be over us and our hearts, that we would be receptive to the Word that we're about to receive. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. I'd like to uh, begin by thanking the pastors for this opportunity to preach. I'm, I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm getting so many chances. I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful to our church for this. Um, so Jonah, fascinating book. We put it, we're putting it to bed today. We're, we're ending Jonah. Um, and it's, it's been a really challenging book. Um, but before we get into Jonah, I, 
Dan last week opened up with a, a very funny story, and so I kind of want to steal some of his thunder. I want to open up with a little funny story, and I actually have a picture uh, for you. It's going to come up on the screen here. This is, uh, anybody know who this is? I mean, the words give it away. This is, this is Debbie Downer. Wow. Um, if you're familiar with Saturday Night Live, um, Debbie Downer was the character in, uh, who would go out of her way, no matter what was happening, everybody would be excited about something, but she would come and give a fact or a statement that would be true sometimes, or most of the time, but would totally kill the vibe in the room. Just level it. Um, she's a character that has, like, it's just super critical, can totally kill the mood, and I, it's hilarious. It's, I, I, I think it's so funny, and I, if you haven't seen any of the videos, I, I recommend that you go check it out. Just, just YouTube it, Debbie Downer. It's worth your time. The reason why I bring up Debbie Downer is because I have a friend who I won't name names or point fingers, Kyle Jameson, uh, if you know <laughs> I told him I'd do that. He, uh, he always comments about me. Um, he, he actually calls me Debbie Downer. <laughs> um, like just last week, we were, I was sitting around a fire with some friends, and they were sharing how excited they were about English Premier League soccer and about, you know, Liverpool's awesome, Manchester United, boo, you know, Chelsea. I don't really know what's going on in that conversation a whole lot. If we're talking about the NBA, I'm there. But in the middle of the conversation, these guys were so excited. I mean, we talked for like, an, like 30 minutes about English Premier League, and I'm like, man, I would totally be into it if it wasn't so hard to figure out when the games are and to stream it. I don't even understand the system and relegation and all this stuff. It's just confusing. And, and in that moment, it was the wah, wah, here's the guy. And my friend, my friend Kyle, he always just gives me this comment all the time. He's like, oh, you're such a critic. But always in a joking tone. And I like think about this. I'm like, why does my friend joke with me about being such a critic, about being Debbie Downer? Uh, what is it about comedy that is so impactful? Uh, any, any fans of the show MASH, the... the Great. Oh, I got one. I got a couple. Got a couple. I love it. Um, the creator and producer of MASH, Larry Gelbhart, he said this fascinating thing. He said, most jokes state a bitter truth. My friend actually jokes with me, and it stings a little bit. The fact is, is that it's very true. The wonderful thing that he tells me and the wonderful things that Debbie Downer actually does is it, it shows that the joke is actually on you and me. It's on us. It's on, particularly in this case, on me. But the wonderful thing about it is that my friend tells me this joke because he cares for me. He wants me to hear a hard truth. He wants me to take it in a digestible way, in a way that will grow my awareness and take ownership to grow only so he can help my presence with other people so that I can be more joyful and refreshing. And I actually think the book of Jonah is like this. It's a comedy. 
And if you take a step back, I, I think the book is actually really funny. Indeed, it, like, it shows that God has a sense of humor. It's a satire. The only problem is I don't think Jonah's in on the joke. He doesn't, he's not seeing the joke. Let's just like, let's look back at it. Let's, let's, let's refresh our memory. Jonah tries to run from the presence of God as if that were possible. He unintentionally evangelizes to pagan sailors and they repent and offer sacrifices and vows to the Lord. He's thrown overboard a ship to stop a storm and is saved by being swallowed by a great fish. And it's interesting because he's in the bowels of the boat, literally in Hebrew, in the bowels of the boat. Then he goes to the bowels of the fish. That's funny. It's, it's hilarious. I mean, I think it's funny. You guys don't think it's as funny. Once he's spat back on land by the fish, he goes to Nineveh and he preaches a five-word sermon. And he doesn't even make it all the way around the city. It's a three days journey. He makes it one day. And the entire city, 120,000 people, repent from their evil. He's so good at preaching that even the cows repent. That's funny. The cows repenting. It's great. He would be like the elite preacher of preachers. Like he would have a million Instagram followers be going to all the events, but obviously he wouldn't go because people wouldn't want to, he wouldn't want to share this message of re repentance with anybody. And what's funny, I can't even get my three-year-old to listen. He gets 120,000 people to listen with five words in Hebrew. It's, it's a joke. It's, it's satire. It's funny. The writer Yvonne Sherwood said this, the book, Jonah, the book is not only funny, it's also very serious even dark. The central protagonist twice expresses a desire to die. The king of the Ninevites, the Assyrians, destroyers of the northern kingdom, commands the most perfect repentance scene in the entire Bible. Even the cattle repent. And like any good story or scripts or skit, the great reveal of what is actually happening comes at the end. And this is where we find ourselves. In chapter 4, verse 1 of Jonah, it says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry. Jonah, Jonah's running from God at the beginning of the story has now transitioned into anger with God because Nineveh had just repented. He's angry. And I, I just think this is interesting because all of the emotions to feel that you could possibly feel at this great success in a whole city turning from their evil, he feels anger. It just, anger can be a funny thing. In a 2017 article entitled How Being Angry Can Sometimes Be Good For You, the clinical psychologist Scott Wilson says that some good can come from anger. For one, it's a catalyst for communication. We are hardwired to pick up facial cues related to anger, and perceptions of these cues is an important aspect of social communication. The experience of or expression of anger communicates to others that we are unhappy with their behavior or that we perceive their actions to be unjust or unfair. Wilson continues by stating that he also feels anger is a vital role to play in any relationship. This is what he says. A lack of expression of anger in relationships can actually be detrimental. 
He explains the feedback anger can deliver is very important to social relationships and actually can make them healthier as long as the anger is not too intense. Like all emotions, anger is a response that organizes our thinking, our physiology, our behavior, so that we can most effectively face a particular type of challenge. It also serves as a means to an end, prepping us for confrontation so that the fight in our fight or flight system kicks in. As anger often strikes when we feel challenged, it gives us the strength we need to get assertive and make ourselves heard. Since anger doesn't feel good subjectively, we are motivated to try and resolve the situation as quickly as possible. I know that's a lot. Anger can sometimes be good. Jonah's flight reflex had already happened in chapter 1. If you remember, he ran away from God, from his presence. But now the fight system in his grievances with God kicks in, and he takes the fight to God. Verses 2 and 3 in chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and, and said, O Lord, it is not this what I said when I was yet in my country. This is why I left, or this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. He expresses to God that he is gracious, slow to anger. He is a covenant-loving God, and he relents from disaster. The only problem is, is that it's the people who don't deserve it. Jonah has established that the Ninevites don't deserve it in his mind. But with anger... There could be more that's happening underneath the surface. Anger is what we see on the exterior. It's what we see expressed. Catherine Fuller, a family medicine physician and author, puts it this way. Often, when anxiety is left unacknowledged and unexpressed, it can turn into frustration, which can lead to anger. When anxiety turns to anger, it is because an individual who expresses anger, will have an underlying fear about something in their life. When individuals are scared or worried about something, they often choose anger unconsciously as a way to feel as though they are in control of their anxiety. This is kind of my story a little bit. I've shared this with people in my group actually just last week. Um, my wife Chelsea expressed something to me that was really interesting about a, a couple years ago as I was interning at the Oaks, working through and processing through some of the things I was going through. And she told me this fact about myself. She said, hey, you, when we got married, I would have never said that you were anxious person, ever. You never exuded anxiety at all, but you were angry. See, what we see on the surface, there may be, it may look like anger, it may look like strength, but underneath all of it, it's actually worry, it's fear, anxiety. And so this is a hard thing for us to ponder. Maybe the hard question is, what is our anger telling us about ourselves? What is my anger telling 
me about me and what is your anger telling you about you? And finding the sources of anger can be hard and challenging. So I have some questions. that These are questions I ask myself. Maybe you can ask them of yourself. Is there something underneath the surface? When you're angry, do I feel safe? Or what do I need? What do I think I need to feel safe right now? Is something different changing or transitioning in my life that is unexpected? A lot of transition can bring anxiety, change. Or here's this, this question is, is me right here. What principles or values do I carry that are being offended right now? Now, if you want to take it even a step further, and this is if you, only if you want to, if you have anger towards other people, I want you to think about making a list of people you're angry with. Actually, write their names down. Then list out all the offenses that they've leveled, that you have to level at them, and all the causes of your anger. Then pray and meditate. Get in the Word. Let, spend time with the Lord. And then revisit that same list. And then ask yourselves, where do these offenses, where do I see them in myself? That's hard. Where do I actually see the offenses and the things that are causing me anger in other people, in myself? Do you think maybe that all the offenses that Jonah saw in the Ninevites, do you think he would have seen any of the characteristics in himself? I would argue that possible. Anger comes out when we are anxious, when we feel unsafe or things feel out of our control. Maybe when we believe something or found out that we didn't have the whole story, and it takes some honest reflection and work to see where that anger is coming from. The anger we see expressed may actually be more complex than we could ever think. So next time you see a friend who's angry or doing something that you are concerned about. Maybe there's something deeper going in. Maybe even in yourself, you might see that. I think Jonah is in a crisis of faith here. I think the whole book is a crisis of faith. I think that the God who he thought he was serving, who formed all of his principles, who formed all of his ideologies, and all of his life as a prophet has just subverted everything that he knew about grace, mercy, love, and justice. And I think there's a possibility that this anger could be a result of the anxiety that he is expressing. The anxiety and anger are so great that he even wants his life to end. He wants to die because of it. Although Jonah may be wrong in his views of God, we can actually learn from his practice in his anger with God. We just read in 4.2 that it tells us that he prays to God. He takes his anger to God. He lists out his grievances to God directly, and he names it clearly. In verse 4, God replies to Jonah's complaints, all of it, with this gentle question. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The story could end there with Jonah and God and God could have just ended it at that point. Jonah is leveling accusations against God and then has the audacity after this to go sit outside of the city of Nineveh 
and watch for the 40-day period that he just prophesied about to see what happens to the city. In verse 5, Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He actually wants to watch and see if God actually destroys it. And he's in this, this dwelling, this, this uh, booth. Is, it's actually called a sukkot. Think of it like a tent. It's very similar to what the Israelites would have dwelled in in the wilderness in Exodus. But it's not super well insulated, and it's probably not great in managing the heat. So God uses this as an opportunity, an opportunity to continue teaching Jonah. So naturally, he gives him a plant. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Exceedingly glad. That's the first time in the book that Jonah has really expressed being glad about anything. I mean, maybe you can argue when he was in the fish, he was pretty excited about being saved. But verbally, he's excited about a plant. All right, let's go. We can work with this now. This is the first time he's excited. So God seems eager to use this plant as an object lesson. He continues in verses 7 through 9, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So that when it withered, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You see, God takes Jonah's beloved plant. He takes it. And then, since the first storm and early in Jonah didn't get his attention and didn't get at the heart of Jonah, he sends a scorching east wind. It's like God is just saying, do I have your attention? All of us have circumstances in life where God is saying, do I have your attention? Jonah expresses again that it would be better for him to die. God again repeats the same question, but this time he frames it around the plant. He says, do you do well to be angry for that plant, for the plant? Jonah is angry enough to die over a plant, and now God can speak really at what is happening between him and Jonah in the subversive reality that he's trying to get Jonah to see. Verses 10 and 11. Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. They don't know anything. They're completely oblivious and lost. And also, much cattle. There's the cattle again, the cows. The humiliation of Jonah's anger for the plant is leveling. It's leveling. It's humiliating. 
he has more passion for the life of the plant than 120,000 people. What does that say about Jonah? And God adds that little jab about the cattle because they repented as well. And this is how the story ends. This is it. We don't know if Jonah continues in his anger or if he repents and takes up the radical mercy, grace, love, and justice of God. This story remains open. Now, there are some theologians that argue that Jonah had to have repented because he would have had to share this story, this very personal story. He would have had to share this with others in order to write it down. I mean, God has other ways of getting his word out there. But it seems like, why would he make himself look like the bad guy and humiliate himself? That's what happens when you've been humbled. Your humiliation then becomes helpful for someone else, and it softens you. But ultimately, we don't know. His story remains open. And the same is true about your story and my story. What is our response going to be of God's radical and subversive goodness, mercy, love, and justice? The mercy and grace that is offered to God's people, to his church, is the same mercy and grace offered to the most wretched person that is far from God. Will you be angry at God's goodness? Or will you rejoice in sinners repenting? You see, the, the story of Jonah paints a picture with the main characters being God and Jonah. And this is what is interesting about the role of the prophet. He is a representative of all of God's people and the voice of God to the people. So if this is true, if this is true, the, prophet, the role of the prophet, the main characters of the story are not just Jonah and God, but it's you and God. It's me and God. It is us. We are the main characters of the story who God is speaking with. See, the book of Jonah is a mirror. It's meant to challenge our beliefs about who receives mercy and grace and who doesn't. It reveals that we are all enemies of God, Jonah and the Ninevites. In the church, out of the church. We are all enemies of God and in need of scandalous grace and mercy that leads to repentance. Jesus would actually share a similar story. He would tell a parable that's open-ended, much like Jonah. And if you've been in church or familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you would be familiar with it. It's often called the prodigal son. You see, a man had two sons. A son asked for his inheritance and runs away from the father. After he squanders it, upon his return in repentance, the father throws a party because the son came home. Meanwhile, there's an older brother who stays at home the whole time, but he's angry. He's angry because the father threw a party for his repentant, extravagant brother. Many theologians actually argue that Jonah is the Old Testament equivalent of the prodigal son. The, the thing is, is Jonah just happens to be both brothers wrapped up into one. He's the brother who runs at the beginning, and he's the angry brother at the end. 
This shows that in our lives and in my life, that we at any time can be either brother, either running from God, celebrating his mercy, or angry that his mercy has been given to people we deem unworthy to receive it. But Jesus would actually interpret the book of Jonah in this way in Luke eleven thirty two, It says this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For, it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The ones that Jesus esteems and, and celebrates, it's the ones who repent. The evil and wicked Ninevites, those are the people who Jesus celebrates, not the religious. And this is a warning to all of us to see that God's nature, it's for us to see God's nature and repent and conform ourselves to his mercy, grace, and justice. We should not cling to our own ideas of who is deserving and who is not. Ultimately, we are all in need of mercy and grace. We are all enemies of God without his grace. So now... In closing the book of Jonah, there are so many truths that we can learn from this rich book. So many things. There are themes of nationalism, racism, social justice, sinfulness, God's mercy, His grace, God's sovereignty, you name it. We've talked about a lot of them in our group. But I want to end our time in Jonah by looking at the challenges and the beauty of the book of Jonah. The challenge of Jonah is that a life of true discipleship means that God will confront all of your ideas and confront all of your principles that don't line up with him. There are times that we will celebrate the grace and mercy of God, like Jonah, and there will be times when we are angry because he's doing something we don't expect. We're going to be angry about, potentially, about what he's doing. The theologian James Bruckner puts it this way. Common sense logic prevails in Jonah's perspective. The wicked should pay for their crimes, not be forgiven. Jonah's issue with God is an enduring issue. God does not suggest that justice should not eventually be done. He simply argues that he would rather forgive and take the risk of letting evil persist in the world. This is a difficult dilemma for all people of faith. He argues that God would rather let evil continue for the possibility of forgiveness. Let that sink in for a little bit. God is calling us to love our enemies and people who don't deserve forgiveness the same way that God has shown us forgiveness. This is only possible through the supernatural work of God. He must change us. Because ultimately, we are enemies of God. We are incapable of changing ourselves. It must be a work of his spirit. And then the last challenge is that the process of mature discipleship will require God to deconstruct our beliefs and practices. Everything's on the table. Everything must be on the table. Like Jonah, we must face some of the humiliation of what we have imposed on God. And we must face the humiliation of the mercy that we have withheld from others 
And I can attest that this humiliation is very real. I have been humiliated about what I thought God should do and who God is, only to be proven completely wrong. It's real. And we must, if we want to be mature disciples, we must embrace that. And that's a challenge. But the beauty of the book of Jonah is that that God is overwhelmingly patient, he is loving, and he is full of grace and forgiveness. Jonah got everything wrong over and over again. Everything. He ran, he was saved, he was reluctant, and he was angry. And through all of it, God is patient with him. He's patient. God could have crushed Jonah, but he doesn't. He's patient. And God is doing the same with you and me. Although we get it wrong over and over again, he continues to gently invite us into his kingdom. He has invited us into the party to celebrate his mercy given. And it is beautiful that God has time for you. He has time for me. He has time for your running. He has time for you to process your anger. And he is inviting you into his mercy and grace personally and his work of mercy and grace to the world. He has time for you. I don't know who needs to hear that. I have to remind myself of that. He has time for you. So now we come to our time of communion and I want to turn our attention to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Jonah, as we just read in Luke 11. He's the greater prophet. Jonah would sit at the east of the city of Nineveh and he would watch and see if it would be destroyed, eagerly waiting for it. He would watch and hope that God would destroy the city with anger and frustration. But Jesus, in a much different manner, would stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives would actually be the east to the city of Jerusalem. And in Luke 19, he would not watch, he would not rain down fire or send legions of angels on it. No, he wept over it. Jesus would not run from the Father's will. He went to the city of his enemies willingly to lay down his life for them. And you and I are those enemies. Even while he died, he would proclaim, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know their left from their right. They know not what they do. So in our time of communion, we remember that Jesus loved his enemies. He's the greater and true prophet, the one we should follow. As we come to communion today, we remember his body broken with the bread, his blood poured out with the cup. If you're not a Christian today, we ask that you do not take communion, but consider that you are being invited. You're being invited to repent from evil. You're invited to receive Christ and join the party of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Do you receive it? Take time during communion to process that. And if you are a Christian, I urge you to, pro- to participate knowing that God has given you grace and mercy 
to live a life that celebrates when others who are far from God receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And thank you that you have kindness and patience and gentleness for me when I have times of anger and anxiety, that you listen, that you process with me, that you teach me and train me, that you have time for me. I pray that, that people would be reminded today that you have time for them, that you're patient, that you're loving. Help deconstruct ways that we don't honor you. Everything's on the table, Lord. Please change us to be more reflective of you. Help us not to hold tight to our principles that don't line up with you and continue to make us mature disciples through your work. We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for what it's doing in us. And we pray for your spirit to work here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.